If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, we will be in chapter 12 this morning. This morning we are going to talk about the prayer of provision. We have often talked about, the kids have talked about it in prayer meeting. We are talking about the acronym of ACTS, uh, something that we will continue to press upon everyone, that uh, the acronym stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And today we are going to be talking about supplication, asking God for help, asking God for things. If we are going to be completely honest, even though we have spent a good deal of time and are talking about prayer on other things rather than supplication, this is where the vast majority of our prayers begin and end. We, we talk endlessly about supplication. And there's a good reason why we pray for these things, because this world is a very hard and harsh world. And there are so many things that impact our lives and the lives of those around us that we need to pray and ask God's help for, whether it is the destruction that cancer has on people's bodies and their minds, whether it is the fact that relationships are so easily broken and, and disintegrated in this world, whether it is the fact that many of you have jobs that you find unrewarding or unprofitable, as or at least under-profitable. Uh, you, you struggle with success in your life. You struggle with children. You struggle with uh, leaking pipes. You struggle with vast uh, problems and difficulties, and these things are things that we ought to be taking before God. So I, I want to be very clear. We've talked about a number of different things we ought to be praying for. This is certainly something that we ought to be doing, going before the throne of God and telling him the problems that we have, from those problems that will crush us to those problems that seem light and airy and simply annoyance. We are to take all of those to the throne room of God. And even though this occupies the vast majority of our, of our prayer life, I, I do think that it's important we realize that this is hardly the fullness of what we ought to be praying for. As a matter of fact, as you go through Scripture, you find it very difficult to find many prayers of the saints that actually sound like our prayers. Their prayers are taken up with the things that we've talked about, with intercession, praying for others, and the needs that others have, not just our own needs, but praying for salvation for others and for the Lord to reveal himself to them. Prayings of lamentation for a fallen world. Prayers of thanksgiving. Repeatedly, we hear prayers of thanksgiving in the Psalms and in the New Testament. We talked about that twice. Prayers of repentance. These, these are the prayers that ought to occupy our time, but certainly these prayers of petition, prayers of supplication are incredibly important. So we will go to 2 Corinthians 12, but I did something to make my job easier this week. I found the solution to many of our problems on the internet. So we're going to go there first, and we are going to find that, that my job has been done. Um, a man named Kenneth Hagen, which some of you might know that name, some of you do not. Uh, he, will, he will be infamous here in just a minute. Um, Kenneth has provided us with a very succinct way in which our supplications can be met by God. So follow these very clear steps. He has four steps, but it's kind of summarized here. We're not going to go through all four because it would be a huge waste of time, and I'm probably going to waste more time on this than, than I should, but nevertheless, this is what we're going to do. Kenneth Hagin says this. This is a quote from his webbish site. He has a whole institute, right? So this is connected to like a school. So he's, he is a president or a founder of a school that teaches this kind of stuff. So listen to how well this starts out. I'm not going to even pretend like you don't, you don't know this is going downhill quickly. So we're, that's gone. We, you know where this is going, but listen to how well this starts out. Learning how to pray effectively is one of the most important things believers can ever do in their Christian walk. Amen. 
Really, we cannot be successful in fulfilling God's purpose in our lives if we do not know how to pray according to biblical principles. Our prayer life should be based and built upon the word of God. In this article, which we will not be reading, I will mention four of the many, which we will not be covering, many principles found, uh, of prayer found in his word. As you learn these principles, determine to get them into your heart so you can put them into practice in your own private prayer life. I began doing this as a young man and I've been receiving answers to my prayers ever since. These steps will help all believers receive answers to their prayers. That sounds good so far. If someone went to the store, this is... Uh, directly into what he says now. If someone went to the store to buy a few things and he bought just those things, you wouldn't think anything was wrong. In fact, you would say that he was being definite in what he was doing. In the same way, decide what you want from God and be definite about it. Great. So you got to know what you want from God. Make sure you've got it firmly fixed in your mind. Know it. Then be definite about it. He says the very next thing. So define what you want from God and be definite about it. Don't be vague. I want things. Now, tell him what things you want. Then find scriptures from the word that promise you whatever it is you want. Be specific in your praying. So let's do this. I would like to have steak for lunch. Steak costs money. So I'm going to ask for some money. I think a million would do it because eating steak for a day is nice, but eating steak for many days is better. So a million probably would cover it, so we're going to ask for a million dollars. Now, the problem is I need to find scripture that promises me that. Now, that is really definite. Let's make it more definite, because a million is kind of a round figure, and God might think that's not, he hasn't thought that through. So $1,586,292, that's what we want to pray for. That's definite. I just need to find a passage. So if you would do me a favor, really dig deep in your biblical knowledge and find me a passage of scripture that literally, as he says, promises you whatever you want. Whatever it was that you wanted, find a scripture that promises that to you. There's like in Third Kings, something, something at the back, I think. So I don't know. Maybe that's not good. Uh, so let's try something else. So Gary, my son loves your car. Not the, not the respectable car that you probably drove this morning, but the other car. Uh, so maybe we can, maybe we can go after that. Uh, get that for Isaac. He would really like that. Uh, it probably wouldn't cause him to die immediately. Um, but I thought about it, and, and I, I can't think of scripture for that either. So it's, it's a real bummer. I think that what we actually need to do is pray that I can find the scriptures that promise me what I actually want. That's what we need to pray for. So if I can find those things. Listen, this is ridiculous. This gentleman... Kenneth Hagin is one of the founders of the Word of Faith movement, which is sometimes derogatorily and rightly called name it and claim it, right? So you, you decide what it is you want, and then you are going to go out and you're going to say, I want that, God, give that to me. And then you cling on, you, you hang on to promises that God makes in his word. Now, we've had friends who did this before. So we, and when we were living in Chicago, uh, they, they wanted an apartment, but they, they couldn't afford this apartment. And they didn't think that they were going to get this apartment. So they they took some vague promise about getting the land in the Old Testament and said, God, I know that you've given us the land. Let this be our land that you give to us. I'm like, you do realize Chicago is a long ways west of Israel, right? Like the crossing of the Red Sea was not going from South Haven to to Chicago. That was not the crossing that happened there, right? So I'm not sure that praying about the promised land actually means some sort of apartment in Chicago. Nevertheless, this is the kind of things that people do with, with this. When we talk about provision, 
Now, what actually goes wrong here? And, and certainly the, the, the problem is that we've, we've sort of inverted the process, right? So instead of finding what we should pray from Scripture, we are finding what we want and then trying to justify that want by Scripture. But honestly, it's not really that that's the problem. Listen, we don't come across the passage in the Gospels that Jesus is the great physician and then think, oh, that's awesome, because now I can pray for Aunt Mary, who's going into surgery tomorrow, right? We, we don't often stumble across scriptures first and then pray for things, but we do what he says. We find out things that we want to pray for. She's, she's telling us that she's going into surgery, or somebody has lost their job, and we say, okay, well, God is a God of provision. God is the great physician, so we know that, and therefore we can pray. So it's not the, the procedure or the mechanism. The, the problem is, and, and it's not wrong to say, we should pray for the things that God promises us. The problem is that this gentleman is clearly loose. While he wants you to be definite with what you ask, he has no idea what God has actually promised in his word. That becomes a real problem. So, for instance, we take the promise to Abraham, one of the great things that these people like to cling on to. He talks about the promise of, if you go back and you read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God promises Abram kind of three big things. He promises him a nation or a family, which ends up being a nation. He promises him land and this sort of general overarching promise of blessing. So what, what do those things mean? Well, it's interesting. The New Testament interprets those things figuratively every time. The land is not just the physical land of Canaan. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, what is the land? The land is the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven where the kingdom of heaven meets the kingdom of earth and they meld together so God makes his home with man. It is not just Israel. It is the entirety of the earth. It is all of the land that God is giving to him. What is the family? Well, in Galatians chapter 4 and in Romans, Paul makes it very clear. His family wasn't just the kids that came from Sarah. His family are those people who believe like he believed. They are children of the promise, according to Galatians 4. And even the blessing. The blessing in the New Testament literally is the blessings of heaven, and Paul calls them spiritual blessings. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's not the fact that he goes down to Egypt and he gets wealthy. Those aren't the blessings that the New Testament talks about. So, We need to be careful about how we pray and what we pray for. And specifically, I think what we think are the good things that God ought to give to us. His problem, and the problem with every prosperity person, is not, as has often rightly been said, that they want too much from God. They don't want enough. Friends, God has better things for you than just things of the world. And Paul is going to helpfully point that out to us using his own personal experience of God's answering his prayer, not how he would like. So let's go and read 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on behalf of myself, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if 
I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of our God. Let us turn first as we work through our passage to Paul's boast. Paul begins this passage by saying, I must go on boasting, which is interesting of itself, because if you go back and read chapter 11, Paul's doing a lot of stuff, but boasting doesn't seem to be it. It doesn't take much boasting to talk about how much you get beaten up and how bad you are at sailing and how angry everybody is at you, but Paul calls this boasting. So he says, here, I'm going to go on boasting, although it doesn't do any good. His boasting doesn't do good, but where he ends up is, he thinks, hopefully going to do him a lot of good. You see, Corinth was prone to wanting signs and displays of power that were in accordance with the things of the day. And so what they wanted was they wanted people who could look the part and could speak the part. They wanted great orators. They wanted people who would show up and have flourish in their speech and in their actions. And Paul simply didn't have this. In chapter 10, Paul writes in verse 10, they say, when he sends a letter to them, that these people who denigrate Paul say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Again, in 11.6, Paul says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. They, they said, listen, this guy writes these awesome, weighty letters filled with gravity and he sounds like he means business and then you find out he's just a kitten uh he he can't he doesn't roar he meows at us and, and he doesn't have great speech he's not gifted in that he, he he doesn't sound like they sound he doesn't look like they look and we don't know if that's someone we want to imitate it is not just paul's presence but it's even how he carries himself the very next verse after verse 6 in chapter 11 verse 7 he says did i commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. See, the other so-called super apostles, as they were framing themselves, or as Paul framed them at the very least, showed up and they said, you know how good we are at our job? When we show up to preach, when we show up to teach, people pay us for the privilege of hearing us. That Paul guy, he gives it away for free. Anything you get for free is not as good as something that you pay for, right? That's like picking up a bed in the garbage. You know that bed's not going to be good. Better go buy one, right? Buying a bed, always, this is totally aside, always buy beds. Don't pick them up by the garbage. So always better, right? And Paul's just giving it away for free. You know that we're better than that. And so they're, they're talking about how wonderful and how grand they are. He calls them super apostles, and he's being ironic with that. Even their missionary zeal is considered greater than that of Paul. They are winning converts left and right. In chapter 3, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? These, these guys were showing up 
from their different cities and their different stops on their different tours and saying, this is a sign of how good we are at what we do. We have letters of recommendation and see how many people we've saved, see how many lives we've touched. Paul didn't match up. These people claimed to have blessing and favor from God that Paul's life clearly lacked. And that's why in chapter 11, Paul's going through all the things that happened to him. He's saying, listen, for the gospel, I was beaten and I was whipped and I was hated by the Gentiles and I'm hated by the Jews and I had to be lowered out of a city over the wall in a basket. I don't have much. I've been shipwrecked. I'm in danger here and I'm in danger there. Everywhere I go, there's bad things happening to me. But now he's going to shift and he's going to say, but I know someone. Now the someone is clearly him. It's thinly veiled. It's supposed to be a humble way of, of talking about this that Paul doesn't even want to mention that it's him, but there's no one who doesn't think that it's him. He says, I know somebody who is taken up into the third heaven. Now that's not like a separate, it's not like heaven has three stories. Okay, it's not, it's not a big mansion. No matter what the KJV says, that's not exactly what's going on. They conceived of the world in very natural, observable terms. So they didn't have satellites. They probably didn't know that the earth was a perfect sphere or nearly a perfect sphere. But they conceived of the world with the ground beneath, the land on top, then the first heavens. The first heavens would contain the clouds and rain would fall from the heavens down to the earth. But they realized that that sky, that heaven, had clouds in it, but there was something beyond those And the stars didn't move nearly as fast as the clouds did. And so there was a second heaven. By the way, they might be ancient, but that's not terribly different than how we speak of things, right? There is outer space and there is the atmosphere. That's first heavens and second heavens is the same kind of deal. But then the third heaven is beyond the second heaven. The third heaven is beyond the stars, beyond the quasars, beyond everything in creation. That is where God's throne room is. And so he says, I was taken up. Several times he says, this vision was so ecstatic, I was so beyond knowledge that I didn't even know if I was in my body. I don't know if God just sort of transported my soul up to heaven or if he took my whole body. I don't know what it was. He says it twice, like, like I was really out of it, okay? I, I don't know what was happening, but I was there. I was in the very presence of God. Listen, These Corinthians and these super apostles like to boast about how much God is using them, about how great they have things from God and how they've received things from God. And Paul says, listen, I have the story that trumps all of those things. You guys get things from God. God takes me to his throne room. You guys hear things from God. God speaks them directly to me. As a matter of fact, God tells me things that I'm not even allowed to tell other people. You think you have blessing and favor from God? I have it more so. You think you've got it good? I've got it better. I could go on and I could talk for ages and ages. And notice what he says even later. He talks about in verse 7, the surpassing greatness of these revelations. These are not just a revelation. This didn't just happen once. God continually did this multiple times for Paul. And they were surpassingly great. They had an excessively great revelation. Paul is saying this is, this is the trump over everything else that you might play. Out of every boast that you might have, I've had it better. But in verses 7 through 8, we realize that Paul was given a burden because of this very same thing. To keep him from becoming conceited, God knew 
that in giving Paul these revelations, that it'd be very easy for Paul to think I'm the stuff because I have seen this. And, and he makes it very clear that it would have been easy for me to fall into this trap because these were exceedingly great things. These weren't like things that I, I would be conceited about unknowingly or, or that I shouldn't really be excited about. These things were things that I, sh- you know, kind of would be prone to thinking I was the stuff. And so God sends him, he calls, a thorn. God knew. Paul's head can get conceited. I can't have that. So I'm going to give him this, this thorn. And scholars love vague things like this. What is the thorn? And they've come up with all kinds of things that the thorn could be. It could be a temptation. It could be some sort of physical abnormality. We know from the book of Galatians, there's strong hints in the book of Galatians, Paul has very bad eyes. So maybe it's, maybe it's the fact that his vision was going. He loved to read. Maybe his vision's going, and that's a thorn to him. Maybe, maybe it is some sort of spiritual temptation. Maybe it's, it's spiritual just loneliness. Maybe there's a whole bunch of stuff that God gives to him. Fact of the matter is we don't know. We, in studying through the book of Genesis, uh, we came upon this several times when we talked about Cain and Abel, right? And Cain and Abel go before God and they offer sacrifices to God and we are told that one is accepted and the other is not. And the immediate question that presents itself to us is, okay, so Abel's is rejected. Why is his rejected and why is Cain's accepted? And people have spilled so much ink over that. And the problem is, the reason why they've got to spill ink over it is because Scripture never actually says why one was accepted or the other is rejected. And here's the clue. When you feel prone to ask a question that Scripture doesn't answer, you're asking the wrong questions. The problem is not what is the thorn. The thorn is brilliantly by Paul just left there. It's left there. It's It's a blank canvas for you to paint your troubles onto is what it is. It is everything and anything that bothers you. Anything that you would think, I should ask God for help here. That is the thorn. It wasn't that for Paul. It wasn't anything for Paul. I'm sure it was very specific for Paul. But nevertheless, it isn't for us. And Paul doesn't paint it in because he wants it to be left blank for the Corinthians and indeed for us. The metaphor is a faceless metaphor. He, mess, he, he further describes this not just as a thorn in the flesh, but a messenger of Satan to harass me. God didn't just send him difficulties, but he unleashed Paul's enemy to come and provide those difficulties for him. Now, there's a really interesting thing going on here that we don't have too much time to talk about. But this should be, I think, a very succinct way of determining how difficult these sufferings actually were for Paul. Because what we have is we have Satan as an angel being sent to a righteous servant of God by God's authority in order to torment him. Does that sound like anybody to you? It sounds a lot like Job. Job who God comes to Satan and says, listen, Satan comes to God and God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He says, yeah, yeah, I considered him. I would love to take everything away from him. And God says, go ahead. And after two rounds of that, Job is sitting there scraping the boils off of his skin with three very unhelpful friends looking at him, telling him how wicked he is while his wife is asking him to curse God and die, while all of his family has died, everything that he has earned is taken away, all of his, his nobility has been removed from him, his health is now gone, he has been reduced to ashes. And Paul, I think, is giving us a slight indication, while he won't tell us what it is, I'm telling you, this is, it was like Job to me. 
Three times, he says, I went and asked for it. Three times. This isn't probably just three, three times where he, he thought about it. Like he, he stubbed his toe, and then later that day, he banged it again. He's like, oh, God, please do something about that. And then later, No, these are three dedicated times of prayer. Paul, fasting and prayer, I am sure, spent time on his face before the Lord, pleading with God, God, take this away from me. This is where our prayers come in. This is where we are. This is when we, when we suffer, when we see other people suffering, when we begin to intercede for them, when we begin to act on our own prayers, this is where we go. This is not the problem of the vision. See, one of the great things about the vision is the fact that that is where everything gets solved. That is where everything is good and right. That is where comfort and peace are in the very presence of God. This is the end and the goal of all of the Christian work. But then as soon as Paul comes back, God gives him something to remind him that this is the earth. You don't live in the visions. I might give those to you for a variety of reasons, but you live on the earth. And in the earth, there is trouble and there is pain and there is turmoil. And so we pray. We pray for our own needs to be met. We pray for others' needs to be met. We pray for the nation. We pray for the world. We pray now because we don't see God, because that comfort isn't where we are. That comfort is still a ways away. So when we pray, let your kingdom come, we are praying for God's comfort, God's judgment to come down to earth and make the world as it ought to be. But as we are here, we know that beauty and peace do not reign here. We know that Satan is active and prowling, and so we pray. And we see in verses 9 and 10, God's kindness, his benevolence to Paul. But his kindness does not look like we think his kindness ought to look. And his grace here does not look like we think his grace ought to look. God says, simply, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul pleads with him. It's painful. It's annoying. It's discomforting. It's disquieting. I can't do the work that I should be doing. I can't focus the way I should be focusing. It needs to go away. And God says, no, I don't think it's going to go away. Our world is so incensed with getting rid of pain and getting rid of suffering. As a matter of fact, that is now, over everything else, the test of whether something is moral or whether something is immoral. Does it hurt somebody? That is the only question you need to ask if an action is moral. Can two adults do whatever they want to? Can I smoke a little weed? Can I do X, Y, Z, H, A, G? It doesn't matter what it is. Fill in the blank. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's okay. And conversely, anything that you might do, including look at somebody sideways, that is hurtful to them is immoral, regardless of how it is framed. Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of ways that we would be able to peck at that, starting with the fact that almost everything in this world is going to hurt at some point in time. There's no way to get away from that. You will be put in positions where there's only going to be amoral choices if, if hurting and not hurting are the only things that you can do. We give our kids, well, the doctors do, give our kids shots, which hurt them, right? Not giving them would hurt them more, probably dozens of years down the road. But nevertheless, hurt and pain are part of 
society. It's part of living in this world. I had a, a girl one time that I was tutoring, and we got talking about morality and issues like that, and she, she said something like this, right? She said, well, you know, if something doesn't hurt anybody, and it, it doesn't take away from their enjoyment of life, then, then just let them be. Let them do their own thing, you know? And she, she talked to me about the story of a man, he was in Scandinavia or something like that, who thought he was a goat, so he, he left his family, and he went out, and he just, like, lived on the side of a mountain or something like that. And she's like, you know, that's great. He wants to do that. That's his prerogative. If he's not hurting anybody, then let him do that. I'm like, okay, that, he's hurting himself, right? Like, he's clearly deranged and mentally unstable. No human being ought to think they're a goat. Let's be very clear about that. Okay, And so if you're in that situation, come and see me and we'll talk. And I'm not going to say, go live on a hillside and do your thing. You're not hurting anybody. Friends, pain is unavoidable in life. Problem isn't pain. It's the goals. It's the end of that pain. And notice what God says here. He says that his grace is sufficient, that the pain needs to be there so that Paul will learn about the sufficiency of God's grace. God's grace is sufficient objectively. That is, the thorn will one day be removed. There's no doubt. Paul has seen the end goal. He has seen a vision of heaven. And God is reminding him, my grace is sufficient to get you there. There will be a day where there will be no more tears. There will be a day where there is comfort, where there is peace. But in that time, until that time, my grace will get you there. There will be a day when I will wipe out all the adversaries. There will be a day when Satan will not be able to do what he is doing now. There will be a time and a place for that. Christ has triumphed over the world. And those who place their hope and their faith and their trust in him not only overcome their sin, but they overcome the world. And in doing so, they are guaranteed when they trust in him and put all of their hope in him that they will one day stand with God as Jesus Christ intercedes for them before the Father. That is objectively true. Just last week, we sung the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One stanza reads this. Though the world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed. You were expecting me to sing. I know it. I'm not going to do it. God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Luther pens something really interesting. His rage we can endure. Not his rage Christ will eliminate and we don't have to face. But we can endure his rage. For his doom is sure. Not his doom is now. Not that it's not sealed. It's sure, but it hasn't happened yet. So he rages at us now, and we can endure it. For one little word shall fell him. Objectively, Christ has conquered. And so the thorn will go. But subjectively, the grace of God is enough to satisfy Paul. It is enough. It is subjectively enough to allow him to sufficiently get through life. Not by removing the thorn, but by leaving the thorn in, he is reminded of the grace of God being sufficient for all of his needs. God's grace ought to be sufficient in our lives to deal with the pain and the strife that haunts every single day. His grace reminds us of Christ, giving us strength because we know that Christ has suffered as well. 
It ought to give us hope, knowing that Christ was raised from the dead and delivered from the very trap that he was entering into. It gives us peace, knowing that as Christ goes, so go we in his wake. In other words, Paul doesn't need the pain taken away. What he needs is the grace of Christ, which has already been provided and is sufficient to deal with the pain. He goes on to say, why is it that grace is sufficient for you? At the end of that verse, he says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. His power is made perfect in weakness. Sounds like his power wasn't quite good enough, but because Paul was weak, somehow that perfected or finished off his power. And that's not quite what it means. It means that his power is, it finds its fullness. Its full power is demonstrated when Paul is weak. If Paul is strong in doing things, then it looks like it's part Paul and it's part God. But he says, when I am weak, when I am brought low, God's power is shown to its fullness. It is made perfect by the fact, not that it removes the thorn, but that it can overcome the thorn. As parents, we get this all the time. We, we instruct our kids in difficult things. When we have placed before them schoolwork and we've placed before them chores and we've placed before them things that they don't like to do. They're obstacles to happiness for them. And we do so because we want them to understand not that happiness comes from having those things removed, but there will be times where you have to get over those things. It is the man who climbs Everest, who overcomes the obstacle of the mountain, who is considered the one who has done something great not the man who's sitting in first class drinking mimosas while he travels over Everest at 30,000 feet. So God here shows his strength and his greatness not by removing the thorn from Paul, but by having his grace be sufficient for Paul even with the pain, even with the suffering, and even with the turmoil. His power being perfected in his weakness is not something that's new to this letter here, but something that comes up even back in chapter 4. In talking about salvation, Paul says this in chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means when Paul goes and he preaches the gospel, what is it that saves people is not Paul's eloquence, It's not Paul's goodness. It's not Paul's kindness. It's not the fact that Paul shows up in power and in might and declares the defeat of everything else because he's strong and mighty. It's because Paul is weak, is Paul is little, and yet God speaks to people. The same God, Paul, very cleverly mentions, who said, let light shine out of darkness. That said at the very beginning of the universe, the things that are not shall come to be, and I will speak them into existence. And all of the power of the universe popped into existence in one second, and Paul says all of that power, the power of that word, is encapsulated in the gospel, and it is given to you, and it makes you new again. That is conversion. It is the power of the very beginning of the universe that is speaking in you. And then he goes on to say, We have that treasure in jars of clay. We have that treasure in weak people, not, not because the power is weak, but precisely because, he says, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not us. Paul is strong when he is weak because God is willing to use him to show his great power through a man who is weak and is caught in a thorn. 
So Paul says, I will not boast in these great things that happened to him, but rather he will boast in his humiliation. He will boast in his weakness. And he, notice what he says in verse 9. He says, I will boast all the more gladly. I'm glad that God left the thorn in me. I'm glad that I am weak. I'm glad that I am suffering because when I'm suffering, Christ's power can shine through me all the more. Friends, are you willing to pray like Paul prays? Now notice he didn't start praying that way, but he has learned to pray that way. He has learned to understand that God sometimes will not remove the pain from you. Sometimes God will purposely leave it there so that he might show that his grace is sufficient for all of your needs. Are we willing to pray for others and specifically for ourselves when we meet suffering, when we meet evil, when we meet distress and we are distraught? Not simply that the pain be removed, but that God might use it for his glory. That we might pray, and not even simply being resolved. This is important. Not just resolved to God not taking it away. Not saying, well, God, I would like this to go. But, you know, if it's really your will, I'll put up with it. Paul doesn't sound like that. Paul doesn't sound resigned to the fact that it's God's will and whatever, I guess. Paul says, no, I will, res- I will exalt all the more gladly. I will, I will speak and boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Not resigned simply to God, not removing it, but happy that he might show that his grace is sufficient for you even in your suffering, even in the trial, even in the temptation, even in the things that you go through. Might we be willing to pray that God doesn't remove our suffering, but in our suffering would show us the sufficiency of his own grace. To pray that this pain might let me see your grace and your kindness more clearly. That is the provision we need. And it's not wrong to pray that God removes those things from us. But it is wrong to think that he has failed or that he hasn't answered. Listen to how Hagen talks at the beginning of what I read. God has answered many prayers for me. Listen, God answers every prayer. He just doesn't answer them the way you want him to answer them. Sometimes it is for our good. God's kindness is shown in leaving us in pain and suffering so that we can learn that what we need is not to have the pain and suffering removed. What we need is his grace, and that alone is sufficient for us. These kinds of things take up the majority of our prayers. Perhaps then we should spend time asking for God not to remove them, but to overcome them. John 12, 23 through 28, Jesus says this, After being told the Gentiles have come to ask of him and to speak to him, Jesus says to his disciples, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. By the way, when he says that, he's not just talking about heaven. And when he talks about being glorified in the Gospel of John, he's not just talking about heaven. He is more strictly talking about the cross. Where I am, there you will be as well. You will enter not only into my glory, but you will also enter into my sufferings. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Let's be careful not to ask that the cup of suffering be taken from us. Not simply to ask that it be removed from us, but to know and to pray honestly in the will of God that that cup of suffering might be left upon us, that we might learn the sufficiency of the grace of Christ when he died on the cross and was resurrected on the third day. There will be a day when all of that will be removed from us. But until that day, let God be glorified in our weakness and let that weakness come upon us in spades, that we could suffer and Christ could be exalted. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful, thankful that Jesus Christ has died for us, for we are weak and we could never accomplish our own salvation. We could never stand before you if it were not for him, dissolving our sins in his blood, taking your wrath and forgiving us for all of the evil that we do in our hearts, those things that we think and we, we desire. Father, many of these are against your will. Many of these are of no use to us. Many of these are simply idols that we desire and long for that would stand against your kingdom. But Jesus Christ has freed us from those and for those who trust in him, he has removed those things as far as the east are, east is from the west. And we are grateful, Father, for his work. We are grateful that you are a great physician, that you do heal people. We are grateful that you are a God of provision who can remove these great obstacles from us. But Father, you are also a God of great grace. You know what is best for us. If it is best to show your sufficiency in grace, if it is best to show your glory in our suffering, we pray that you would make us suffer, that we would do so gladly for your glory and for your name so that Jesus Christ might be seen to be all that we need. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.